about a three month period, it went from 30 to about 60 pills a day. Uh, every nickel that I made went to drugs. And you shouldn't even be alive today, should I, you? I really shouldn't. No. When I came out of this in February and went in for a physical and began a rehab program, the uh, nurse practitioner who was taking my vitals and blood pressure, she did the blood pressure, and then uh, she had this really strange look on her face, and she said, hmm, uh, Mr. Morris, I think we're going to have to do this one again. And I said, you know, I'm thinking God just totally delivered me, healed me. I said, is it that good? She said, no, you should be in a coma right now. Is your marriage on the rocks? Are you thinking about divorce? Has your spouse destroyed the trust level that you once had? Hi, and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler. Ten years ago, I did a two-part interview with Justin and Becky Morris. Their marriage was heading to divorce court. But what happened to this young couple who met in the youth group at church? Both were in love with each other and desired to commit their lives to God to serve in ministry that eventually included planting churches. How could a bottle of pills change their course and plans that they were so committed to? Let's hear their story now. Today, I have some really good friends that are willing to come and be transparent with us. Justin and Becky Morris, these are friends from way back. As a matter of fact, uh, Becky goes way back to youth group at church many, many years ago. Many, many years. Many years ago, Becky. Your family was some of the first folks I met. Your brother, John, was really one of the first Christians I met as a junior in high school. Your sister and your brother, and you guys just loved on me as a new follower of Christ as a teenager. I watched you grow up. Right. God brought you a man, Justin Morris. He and, did. Uh, <laughs> and Justin's a great guy. 20 years ago. Tw- has it been 20 years already? 20 years, 20th yes. anniversary. Wow. Summer. How about that? Mm-hmm. And Justin, I know that you have been uh, a pastor. Both of you have planted churches. 12 years in the ministry, uh, you planted a church in Washington, which was kind of a, a no man's land ministry-wise, a very difficult place to plant a church, wasn't it, Justin? It, was. it really was. It was a, a huge unreached people group or an unchurched people group, which is really the motivation for going there. And we spent uh, six years there. We graduated from seminary here from uh, Mid-America in 95, moved out to Spokane, Washington, planted a church, came back here in 2001 and planted a church in Lakeland. And it was almost during that transition, just, just before leaving Spokane, that uh, our lives really began to take a different direction that was undetectable at the time, but really has come to define what our ministry is and, and to a large degree, what our lives have become about. Becky, when you first met Justin, what was it about him that attracted you to him? Well, I have to say, when I met him, even though I was in Bellevue, you know, all of my life from the cradle, I did not have a personal relationship with Jesus until I turned 19. And that in itself is another testimony, how that happened. Actually, I met Justin in the second grade at Bellevue in Sunday school class. It took me 18 years to get her back. Yeah. <laughs> After I got saved when I was 19, I saw that he was back there, too. It just sparked this relationship. We started out being friends. Um, he had just become a believer in Christ, and uh, there was just something about him. He just loved God. I just knew that I was supposed to be with him for the rest of my life. How about for you, Justin? Oh, it just took one look. I was probably infatuated, could have been accused of stalking. I remember the, the oh, singing yeah. Christmas he, tree back. We married Front in, row. Every time I was in the singing Christmas tree, there he yeah. was. <laughs> we married in 89. So at a performance in 88, I remember the Christmas tree. This was downtown. I literally went to every single performance just so I could watch her. Of course, I was terrified. I wouldn't approach her and talk to her. But there was just a real life about her. 
At the time, I was an extreme introvert, very focused and driven, but very just didn't have great social skills and didn't have any deep relationships. And I saw a life and a flavor and a personality about her that was really appealing. I think that was uh, beyond, obviously, the physical attraction. It was just that personality that I saw. And we also both knew at the early age of 19 that God had called us to ministry. That's what we wanted to do for our life. And that was to be a pastor and a pastor's wife? Well, we didn't know what form that was going to take, but whatever it was, they had a thing one time at at Bellevue, and um, we both went down individually to give our lives to full-time Christian ministry, whatever that took. 20 years you've been married. God Mm -hmm. has blessed you with children. Four wonderful children. Catherine is 18. She's at Mississippi State on a vocal and academic scholarship. have to brag a little bit about that. (laughs) Bryn is a junior at Arlington. Conley is in sixth grade at Appling Middle School, and then we have a son, Cam. That's in the fifth grade. I mentioned the word transparent because you guys said that you really want to share your story, Justin, Mm -hmm. as you talk about having been in the ministry for these years, working to plant churches, not only, as you mentioned, on the West Coast, but here in Memphis and desiring to serve God that way. But there were some things that happened in your life that kind of changed your course, didn't it? Very significant ways. I've come to realize there were so many deficiencies in my life and in my character not necessarily moral issues, just things that I lacked internally, you know, that go way back throughout life and childhood. But they really surfaced in very destructive ways. I began to get headaches, severe, excruciating headaches, while we were in Spokane back in 98. And we tried every medication known from migraine meds to uh, anti-inflammatories, muscle relaxers. We tracked diet, exercise, sleep patterns. We couldn't figure out what was causing them, how to prevent them or treat them. And I had back surgery that year and had some leftover pain medication. And one day when one of those headaches came on, I took a pain pill. And sure enough, 20 minutes later, the headache was gone. So I called my doctor the next morning, and she was excited. And we thought, well, we haven't found a way to prevent them, but we can at least treat them this way. And so that began the journey that led to great destruction, and people can already figure out where this is headed. But I went from taking a pill a week on average. I'd get a headache every 7 to 10 days or so. When I had a headache, it would take care of the headache. And then, of course, over time, after about a year, one pill became one and a half just because tolerance builds up. But the real seduction came in when... It wasn't that I'm taking a couple of pills for a headache, but, you know, I think I feel a headache coming on. And then after a few months of that, it was, I don't even have a headache, but I'm just in a crappy mood and I want to feel better. And one thing led to another. And after a couple of years, I would just wake up in the morning and take a couple of pills just to get me going. Then I'd take a couple more in the middle of the day to keep me going. And then a couple more at night when I come home so I could be energized to, to be a good dad. And, you know, that's that's the, the deception of it. Becky, when did you know this becoming more than just to get rid of a headache, but this was becoming a habit? Well, we were living in Spokane. Not really anything, um, well, apart from the fact that ministry was just really hard. It was really hard in Spokane. I guess that is partly related due to the fact that God just really couldn't do much because Justin was living in sin. And I had no idea. I don't know anything about drugs. I had nothing. I didn't know anything. So it wasn't until... How many years later when we were? Well, ultimately about four years in in the process, we moved back to Memphis and planted a church in Lakeland. And around that time, I discovered that you can buy these online prescriptions. So I began supplementing legitimate doctor's prescriptions with bogus prescriptions. In the mind of an addict, when that happens, you just feel like there's no end to supply. You don't have to ration. You don't have to worry about it. 
So uh, this is all very secretive. Becky didn't know anything. No one knew this was going on. Everything was done. In, in so there's nothing in your behavior that would allude to the fact that you were doing drugs. Well, I knew that he had headaches, and I knew that uh, sleep patterns were off, but I just thought it was just stress from being church planners. Right. I mean, I was like she, totally in the—I had no idea. She knew I took him for headaches. Right. She didn't know that I was taking him— multiple times a day, every day. Uh, she did, after a while, when the addiction really became strong, she did notice mood swings. Of course, when I'd take pills, I'd be very up. And then as they wore off, I'd come crashing back down and just go through these wild mood swings. And occasionally she'd question, what are you taking? How many are you taking? She sensed that something was wrong. But it literally got to the point where I was taking about 30 pills a day. And I had racked up about $30,000 of credit card debt and managed somehow to hide everything from her. He even hid the credit card debt. Justin is a very smart guy. That's one of the signs of an addict is that they're so manipulative. And a lot of people that are addicts are usually very smart because they know how to lie. They know how to get away with it. So that's one of the many challenges that I had. You know, whenever right. I would bring it to his attention, he would somehow talk his way out of it or make me feel like an idiot for asking. And so I just I didn't know what it was. I didn't know. So that was part of your addiction, too. Oh, absolutely. Every, everything in my life was manipulation. Every relationship, every encounter, every activity. My entire life by this point, literally every waking moment revolved around drugs. And how many did I have? How many could I take? What meetings did I have? How many did I need to take for that meeting? It's a horrible way to live. It finally all came to a head at the very end of 1994. Uh, the church, Centerpoint Church in Lakeland, I had put some elders in place, great men, godly men. And they had seen these wild mood swings, and they saw long periods of just no productivity. They knew something was severely wrong. They just assumed it was just a dead spiritual life. Uh, they had no idea what it really was. But I went out of town one weekend, and while I was gone, they wisely went on the computer and looked at all my computer records, and they found every order. Of course, there were literally hundreds of orders. And when I came back in town, they called me into a meeting. They had printed out all those orders and a huge stack of papers. They laid him in front of me. I'll never forget that moment. One of the guys, David, as he was handing him to me, he looked at me and said, Justin, I just want you to know that I love you. And he handed me these papers. Of course, I knew what it was, and I began to just to, to leave through them. I didn't even need to see it. They were just silent. And after it seemed like hours, probably just you know 10 or so seconds, I said, uh, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I've become. And they gave me an ultimatum. They said, you, you got two options here. If you're belligerent, if you try to manipulate your way out of this, uh, we're done with you. And we're going to report because it's very illegal, not only immoral, sinful, destructive. It was illegal what I was doing with the online prescriptions. They threatened to turn me in. They said, or if you will get help, then we'll come alongside you and do everything we can to see you get whole and healthy again. And by this time, Byron, I, I was so miserable. I had lived a couple of years in deep addiction. The shame, the guilt, absolutely terrified. And Justin, I think it's important that we let our listeners know that as you're looking at someone with an addiction, oftentimes you'll say, just quit, just stop. But when you get to a point, Becky, that Justin was at, they just can't stop on their own, can they? They can't stop. And that's what people just don't understand. Addiction is such, the devil has got his claws in you, and you can't do it alone. You cannot you cannot get this monkey off your back alone, and you can't pray it away. You cannot pray it away. You can't fast it away. You can't. You have to have help, supernatural and, you know, human help. What's well, interesting in the, in the New Testament, like in Galatians 5, when Paul talks about the works of the flesh, included in that list is the word witchcraft. And typically modern-day Christians, we look at that and think that's some weird tribal, you know, thing from some primitive culture. The Greek word is pharmakia, and it literally refers to drug use, to altering your state of mind through drugs. 
And so I was practicing witchcraft. It's a work of the flesh. It's a spiritual thing. Obviously, it's a physiological thing. And you can't just quit. Now, there are people who've been delivered. They come to God. They confess. They repent. They're desperate to be free. And God just instantaneously sets them free. But for most people, the vast majority of people, you don't just quit. I desperately wanted to quit, tried several times to quit on my own. It's absolute hell on earth to go through the physical agony of that. I would do it when Becky was out of town, so there would be no expectations of certain behavior. Uh, but I just couldn't do it. But I was so desperate by this time and so terrified of being found out but desperately wanting to be free that when those guys gave me the opportunity to come clean, uh, not only did I take it, I, everything just came pouring out of me. I couldn't get it out fast enough. And so I did go into uh, rehab for four days, uh, almost four days. That's a whole different issue. But I spent four days there. I really didn't get uh, rehabilitated. I didn't go through recovery, but I did detox. I did get the drugs out of my system. And that began another process. What we thought was over was really just the beginning of so much more that God wanted to do. And here's really the key part of the story. I spent the next uh, three and a half years clean. I didn't take drugs, didn't take pills. Uh, I was clean from the addiction, but Byron, I was so broken and I was so empty inside. And for me, my entire identity had been as a spiritual leader, a pastor, a church planner, a counselor, a preacher, a teacher, all these things. My whole identity was wrapped up in that. And my whole relationship with God was defined by what I did and trying to earn God's approval and significance from other people through what I did. And so when when my addiction came out, I didn't get to go back to work in a couple of weeks. I lost my job. I lost my career, my livelihood, but really I lost my identity. And I spent the next three and a half years, we both did, just wallowing. It, terribly embarrassing for Becky for this whole thing to come out. Very shameful for her. This husband who had been on such a pedestal in her mind and in the mind of so many others right. had become such a disgrace. Plus, it's changed your way of supporting your family. Right. Exactly. Right. I went back to, to literally to washing windows, which is what I'd done to, to work through college and seminary, uh, you know, just desperate to provide. But our whole lives have been turned upside down. How did this affect your children? I will never forget that day that I, I was in cosmetology school, actually, came home and the, the children were not home. And. And I went upstairs, and Justin told me what had happened. And I just, he said, Becky, I've done something. And I I just assumed affair. That's what I assumed. He told me what, what it, he had done. It was done. kind of an affair. Oh, it was a, yeah, yeah, it was a love, love-hate it was. relationship. Yes. It yes. was. My part of the story is that for those three years that he wasn't using, whenever we got in a fight, I was an angry woman, bitter, hmm. angry at God, um, that it's okay. That my life had been taken away. Yeah. And here I, you know, we did everything right. We didn't have sex before we got married. We were called into ministry. And how could this, how could this have happened, yes. you know, to us? Um, it just didn't seem fair. And I was very angry, very mad. And I let him know it almost every day. Called him a failure. My children knew that I was angry. Um, it was like walking on eggshells all the time, and um, it was just a part of my heart that I was not going to give to God because he had let me down. It, it was very, very hard on the children. You know, I thank you so much, Becky, for sharing your heart, and you too, Justin, because I know there's listeners right now to our program that are right where you are, mm -hmm. and they don't see any help out. They mm -hmm. don't see any way, and they've been crying tears of frustration 
they're having that spouse, that one they care about so much, lie to them, all the deceit that goes along with it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's so obvious. And it is hard. It's hard to forgive. You do get angry. Why does it have to be this way? It just, you're running your life. You're running our lives. Mm-hmm. But God's grace is there, isn't it? I it mean, is, you guys but, have discovered that in a way. We're going to get into that in a mm-hmm. moment. But as you continue on, Justin. The story gets worse from there. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there, there's still a long way to go to, to hit bottom. Three and, and a half years. And I think that's important. We're working our way down. Right. right. Because you have to hit bottom before there's mm-hmm. going to be right. any hope. And we'll talk right. about that. Continue on, yeah. Justin. So these three and a half years, I was clean, uh, but miserable, broken, humiliated, as opposed to humbled, filled with shame, regret, remorse. And so we're in this vicious cycle. I had no ambition. I had no passion for life and no drive that a man needs to have. And so there was nothing in me that could spark hope in her that she could look at and say, now, there's a man you know, who's turned things around. There's a man I can trust again and follow again and, and believe in again. All that inside of me had literally just died. So her response was anger and frustration and bitterness, which fed my despair and, and continued downward spiral. And so we're just, you're just going down and down and down. About a year ago, late summer, early fall of last year, just through a series of events and circumstances, just to make a long story short, I relapsed. And one of the things I learned in rehab that first time is that for an addict, if you ever relapse, you don't go back to where you started in your addiction, which, you know, for me would have been a couple of pills a week. You go back to where you finished. And so within just a matter of days, I was taking 30 pills a day again, roughly. Uh, this time, I didn't have prescriptions, don't have credit cards, couldn't do it online. So I found ways and started buying them on the street. On the street, I mean on the street. The stereotypes you think of, that's where I was. Uh, and that's where I was living. It quickly, over only about a three-month period, it went from 30 to about 60 pills a day. Uh, every nickel that I made went to drugs. And you shouldn't even be alive today, should I, you? I really shouldn't. No. When I came out of this in February and went in for a physical and began a rehab program, the uh, nurse practitioner who was taking my vitals and blood pressure, she did the blood pressure, and then uh, she had this really strange look on her face, and she said, hmm, uh, Mr. Morris, I think we're going to have to do this one again. And I said, you know, I'm thinking God just totally delivered me, healed me. I said, is it that good? She said, no, you should be in a coma right now. My blood pressure was like 190 over 150. And literally, she said, you should be dead. And the level of pills I was using and what I was putting in my body for months, apart from God's grace, mercy, there's no reason I should be here. So physically, I had deteriorated. Financially, we were in collapse again. And she was terrified to bring it up and to ask, but she knew something was tragically wrong. Uh, The behavior, uh, bills weren't getting paid. Everything was just messed up again. It all came crashing down. I had even reached a level, Byron, not only of, of the addiction, but it had, I had become so depraved and so completely without restraint. I had no restraint in my life at all. I began actually stealing money from family members, thousands of dollars. I knew when I started that, of course, in the mind of an addict, on the one hand, it's like, I don't care, I just need my pills, whatever it takes. On the other hand, I knew that you're going to get caught. And I think by this time, I actually wanted to get caught. I wasn't suicidal, but I didn't want to live and not like this. And so when I did get caught over the money issues, everything fell apart. Of course, the devastation this time to Becky and the children was was just indescribable. And Becky, up to this point now, after Justin had gone through three years of being clean. But not living, right. Yeah, but before he started getting back into the drug and depending upon these 60 pills a day. Right. 
had you started building confidence again, or that was still not there? Uh, no, it was <laughs> it was not there. There was we nothing just, to be confident there was in. Nothing. There was mm-hmm. nothing. It was just we were just going through the motions, and it was really pitiful, depressing way to live. We were struggling to raise kids together by that time. Yeah. And did you have anybody that you could confide in? Where was the church for you at this time? Well, were, you that, finding, were you finding some encouragement, some support there? No, and that, at the time, that was, it was no fault of the church. One of the factors in that, fault. we were between churches, so to speak. After the first addiction, the first go-around, we stayed at our church, and those guys were phenomenal. The church was amazing. Imagine asking the founding planting pastor who just crashes with an addiction to come back and be a part of the church, be a part of the family. They were Jesus to us. Uh, they were. Phenomenal. So we spent a couple of years there, had great times, great recovery. Uh, but at one point, it was just time for us to move on, not through any negative reasons. Those guys are still some of my greatest friends. But we were literally had been looking for a church for over a year. And so I was not connected spiritually, didn't have any vital relationships. Where no I was, accountability. None. 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 Not, not even really social life. Nothing going on. Uh, huge financial struggles. Uh, summertime is always the slowest time of the year for my business. Last summer is when the economy really started to tank. Uh, had an immediate effect on me. So the, the summer slump turned into a collapse, increased financial pressures, no social life, no spiritual accountability. Everything came together where I just quit. Becky, what about for you? Because I know sometimes men can just bottle things up and don't have to really share their emotions, but it's not always the same for women. What did right. you do? Um, my outlet, I'm a hair stylist and um and I've only been doing it for five years. I have to say that was just kind of my outlet. I would just go to work, and that was just where I lived, and that's what I did. And I just stayed busy doing my own thing. Right. And even though I knew that something was going on, and, and what happened was the Sunday before I found out, before Justin was found out, we were at church, and we had not been tithing for you know a couple of years. And I'm I'm tired. I was like I'm I'm tired of living this way. God, I want to know why there's such a struggle. Why is there so much conflict in the home? Why are you not blessing us? Why is life just so hard? And I wrote a check out and I put it in the offering plate. And I'm like God, I'm going to be obedient and I'm going to just trust that you are going to reveal to me what's going on. That Tuesday, two days later, I got a phone call from Justin. I was working out, and he called me, and he said, you need to come home. And I knew. I knew it was bad news. And um, I came home, and he came walking down the stairs, and he said, Becky, I've done it again. And it was just like God was showing me, Becky, this is why I have not been able to bless you. And this is what I have to show you. This is what I have to I have to pull the blinds back and let you see what's really going on. Once again, my life fell apart. I literally was in fetal position. I could not move. Mm. Um, I wanted to, to die. Mm. And um, just in, just hadn't really did not know how I was going to, you know, make it. One of the images, Byron, I'll never forget and really don't think I want to forget is she went and literally threw herself on the kitchen floor, and she was in a fetal position screaming uh, the most gut-wrenching sounds coming out of her mouth I've ever heard. And uh, that was almost bottom. We're, we're getting there. Circumstantially, addiction-wise, that, that was the bottom. Over the next few days, she decided she was going to divorce me, for which I didn't blame her at all. Uh, her family supported that decision. So we began to make arrangements for separation, and then the, the divorce proceedings would you know, take care of themselves. 
The first couple of days, I wanted to die. I wasn't suicidal in the sense of despairing, but I just reached a place where I had destroyed so much and and hurt my family so badly that I had concluded this is all I'm going to do. I'm just going to continue to hurt them and hurt them and hurt them. They'd be better off without me. And so I began to devise ways I could kill myself and then for the sake of my children, not let it look like a suicide so they wouldn't at least have to deal with that. And then that third day, I'll never forget, it was that Friday. Everything came crashing down on Tuesday. That Friday, obviously now I know it was the Holy Spirit, but something in my mind just snapped. And I thought, you know, if if an addict goes back to his addiction and goes back to the highest point of addiction, why can't that be true spiritually? Why can't it be true that when we repent and truly, truly come to grips with our sin, that we can go back to the place where we were most intimate with God. That seed was planted in my mind, and I wanted to find out where that place was. And through a lot of prayer and reflection, interesting, as the weeks unfolded, Becky and I identified the exact same time, place, condition of our lives when everything first began to get off track. But those um, first few days, I can't even describe how painful it was, and this is an no pity, Justin. There's no pity to this, but the absolute agony of coming to terms with how sinful I was and how much destruction I had wreaked on my family, just uh, tortured by it. Nights of of anguish, literally all night, uh, just crying out to God, screaming out to God, you know, why, why have I done this? Why have I become this? Please forgive me. And I had to reach a point where I I had to decide uh, under the assumption I wasn't going to have Becky back. Do I want to continue on with my life? I want my life back. However that looks, whatever it is, ministry is not an issue. Obviously, I'm going to lose my marriage, but I cannot continue to live this way. I want my life back. I want that old Justin back wherever he is. Byron, when I reached that place of just self-loathing, I literally loathed myself and everything that I had become. God just sent a tidal wave, and and I don't have words to describe it. And it wasn't an emotional one-time encounter. It It was an ongoing experience of God's power and mercy and grace and goodness. It's just indescribable. I did have men in my life. They were amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, They weren't afraid to come in and get their hands dirty and jump in my pit with me. I want you to describe this transformation that took place as you find that God's grace met you at your weakest point. Our time's gone. We can't continue Mm -hmm. on. We're going to have to do another program because we want to spend the next program and talk about just the total restoration and the day-to-day because Mm -hmm. I know it's a healing is a process. It Mm -hmm. is. As we conclude today's interview with Justin and Becky, remember there's more to the story that we'll pick up next time here on Mid-South Viewpoint. If your marriage is in a place of despair or you're stuck in a reviving door of addiction, please ask for help. No matter your circumstance, God loves you. There is hope. Never give up. Find a biblically-based support team to walk with you in your journey for healing and redemption. Thanks for listening. I'm Byron Tyler. 